Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Um, we have an MRI schedule for 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, the uh, you know preliminary diagnosis was uh, a possible lat strain, uh, which may or may not be related to his previous complaint, which was in the bicep. So we'll just have to wait and see uh, what happens tomorrow. But... Um, that's the reason he's not here. He's on his way back uh, to New York. That's pretty much it. Have you talked to him yet? Yeah, I talked to him uh, after he came out. Yeah. Seems was there any regret on his part that he didn't have the MRI? You think? Uh, we didn't. We didn't get into that. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that was uh, necessary at that particular time. So um, uh, I think he understands that you know there's something going on now that uh, he needs to have examined. Say, I know you guys didn't do the MRI, but going up to it, I know you said a lot depends on the player himself. I mean, you asked him, how, you guys asked him how he felt, obviously. Well, we, you know, we, we asked him how he felt, and uh, he felt fine. Said he could have pitched uh, on turn last time out, and um, then he, you know, we, we, we took him at uh, at face value, but he also threw a, a pen and felt fine. So, um, you know, on on the basis of, of that input as well as uh, his own. Um, comments. Um, he was good to go. But he, he did decline the MRI originally. Then it's not confirmed. He did decline or in the week. Yes, he did. Do you wish that maybe he would have taken the MRI earlier? I think Sandy addressed that. I'm not going to address Noah's question right now. I, certainly, it was uh, something we didn't need to see. Could you see anything from him in that first inning that was wrong with him physically, or? So 100. Yeah. It's 100. I saw nothing wrong physically. You seem pretty upset yourself. You think? Yeah. What do you think? I'm curious everything guys been through. I mean, this and knowing what he is to this staff. I mean, how big a blow is that for you guys? It's big.
It's another edition of the Trophy Mess Podcast here on this Sunday, April the 30th, 2017. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Go out there, find one. I'm always looking for new avenues for you guys to get the show and make it easier for you, and I always appreciate it. And if you can leave a review on iTunes, that seems to be the new thing. I don't really ask and beg for that stuff, but I've heard a lot of other podcasts say it's a big deal to get more of the word out there, and, and I do appreciate it if you have time. Good, bad, and different. It's all, it's all, it's all good, as long as it's your opinion and it's natural. I always appreciate you taking the time to leave feedback. Uh, a lot to talk about. You heard in uh, the open there the comments after the game by Sandy Alderson and Terry Collins. I do want to say you will, uh, you know, joining me in a little bit is Keith Law. I had a chance to catch up with Keith yesterday, uh, so you hear that interview. Uh, he has a book out. Now, you all know Keith from ESPN. He has a book out, Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball. It's uh, published by William Morrow. Just came out, actually came out this week. And uh, Keith is not easy to get an interview with, especially with the old ESPN. And I guess maybe that's going to change a little bit with some of the shakeup that's going on there. But usually, historically, for the last 10 years since I've been doing media, anytime I asked Keith to come on, it was almost an ESPN kind of block out there. And that's understandable. So... With the book, a rare opportunity to get a hold of Keith. I know he's done a few things at Metsmerized Online, our, our, our great partners over there. Uh, this is going to be really centered on the book and really why he wrote the book, some of the ways he looks at baseball, where the statistical community is going, and, and so on and so forth. There's some real interesting uh, things that we could talk about. So we'll get to that in the second part of the show after the break. Keith Law, ESPN. You can check him out on Twitter, at Keith Law, and his book, Smart Baseball, will get into that. As far as the Mets, it's interesting because as the week went on, when you do a weekly podcast, the, as you start to formulate, well, what am I going to talk about this week? And it, it obviously formulates throughout the week and crystallizes, and maybe something happens earlier in the week that, that well, there's your theme. And this week was interesting because I don't know if, what I was going to talk about today was going to be vastly different. But today took a little extra cherry on the top of what I was going to say because forget 23 to 5. You know, 1 nothing, 2 1, 18 nothing, 30 nothing. It's embarrassing what happened today, especially against the Nationals. I personally wouldn't have allowed Plowicki to go out there and, and, and get the tar beat out of him against this team. I understand why they did that just to save bullpen arms. I, I would have maybe asked a smoker or someone to go a little bit more, but I know what the pitch counts and, and, and what's going on, you know, with this team and the need now, especially with Syndergaard probably going to be out a little bit. They're going to need as many fresh arms out of that bullpen as possible. And you don't want to overuse people. And I think part of the problem that you see with Salas particularly is the overuse that he encountered earlier in the year. What I was going to say is this, is that despite winning two, and even if they swept today, the reason I felt the Mets were probably not right now as constituted a a, a team that can take this division are some of the things I saw, not only during the week, 
but this weekend. The infield D, to me, uh, has taken a huge step back. Cabrera has maybe, maybe it was playing through some injuries last year, has clearly lost the step. Reyes is nowhere near, and maybe the error today at short is, is a product of him not playing a lot of short, even at third, and that's a tough position. I see Reyes as having played worse D so far this year than I saw last year, and that's anecdotal with my eyes. I don't care what advanced stats say. It, look, it looks not good. Um, the outfield D, I mean, we knew it was going to be an issue. I thought Curtis Granderson filled in admirably last year in the last six, seven weeks, but there's a couple of balls this weekend I looked at and said he should have gotten that. There was one today. Um, you know, even early in the game with that single in the first inning where he couldn't throw the runner out of the plate, a normal center fielder with a normal arm, they probably don't send the runner. So to me, those are two big things that I don't even know if they're fixable. And those are things that are problems and issues. Now, with a strikeout staff, it may not be as pronounced. Remember, this is a team that went to the World Series with Wilmer Flores and Daniel Murphy as their up-the-middle defense. So if you could win with those two guys up the middle, you could certainly win with the characters I just mentioned. You know, the other, the other thing I was going to say was the bullpen. I think I'm very disappointed with the, you know, for, and I think Reed has done, I mean, take, I know the home runs have touched him up, but he's not walking batters. He's still striking out well more than a batter per inning. I think Reed will be fine. Familia rebounded nicely yesterday. I think eventually he'll get to be where he is. I mean, it was interesting. Kristen Yelich wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune about the five toughest pitchers in the, Amer- in the National League East, and, and Familia was one of them. So he's not, he's not chopped liver, and I don't think he forgot how to pitch because he was suspended 15 days for domestic vi- violence. I am disappointed in the Salas smoker, and I know Robles is, has good numbers, but I don't, still don't trust him to be able to step up and move into a seventh or eighth inning role and help breed out. I don't trust him. I don't think he has it in him. I don't think he knows how to pitch. And once he gets off, he's hard to get back on. But I thought this bullpen was the best bullpen that this team has had since Alderson took over. And Blevins has done a nice job, but again, I don't trust Blevins against righties, so I don't want to put him in the mix. Blevins has done a nice job there against lefties. And Edgen now is, is developing a couple of big outs off of Harper this weekend as a situational lefty, but I've been disappointed. So I'm worried about the bullpen. You can see the difference, the Nats offense and the Mets offense. The Mets don't have a bad offense. They have a streaky offense and they're an offense that's feast or famine. The Nats seem to be an offense that keeps on coming, keeps on coming. Reminds you a lot of the Phillies in their heyday. Reminds you a lot of those Yankees offenses. Um, And they took a big hit with Adam Eaton this weekend, losing him for the year or probably the year. The Nats are not going to allow bad teams and bad pitchers to shut them down. So even when Scherzer or Strasburg or any of their guys have a bad outing, like today, they're going to score more than enough runs to overcome that. So it's going to be really hard to get any gifts. And you're already six games out in the loss column at the end of the first month. That's a ton of games. Now, to the Mets' credit, they could have easily been blown out of the division this weekend. Because if they got swapped and they were somewhere in the 10-game out range, Sure, teams come back, but, you know, it, it's, it's a tall task. And also remember something. There's been plenty of teams that have started out slowly and come back and made run, runs. The Braves did it a couple of times. I mean, the Braves had a team, I believe it was the 92 Braves, 
think they're under 500 until like late May, maybe early June. I mean, the Braves team in 93 was uh, uh, significantly back of the Giants going into uh, the, the late July and came back in, in a non – I think in a, it, that was before the wild card. So that was a non-wild card year. So I'm not worried about 10 and 14. What does worry me, and it ties into the Syndergaard injury, is that you have either a management team – and I have to say, from what I see, it's the coaching staff, and specifically Collins and Warfin, because these are the two Teflon guys that never get touched, that seriously have either an engagement level pro- problem where they're not engaging to the level they need to be with the roster and letting the roster and the veterans handle things, because I know that was Terry's big thing in spring training. He called like 14 players in and said, this is your team, you're going to handle it, pop, 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 pop. Which I get, but that's kind of like, to me, it's like, yeah, you guys are going to do some policing, but you got to remember, buck stops at the top. I saw this week a video of Cespedes in batting practice, keeling over, and nobody's talked about it. Like, where was the manager? What was talked about? Why was Cespedes in the lineup? If he was keeling over in batting practice the day before, he got hurt. Well, shouldn't that be something that maybe should be brought? Maybe it was. Didn't sound like it, or it would be a concern to me. I saw the fact that Harvey, first of all, I didn't like the fact that they lied about the Gazelman Syndergaard flip-flop, and then it wasn't a flip-flop. And, oh, it was a little clerical error. We're not stupid. We're not stupid. And I understand that they don't want to make mountains out of molehills here, because that's what the media will do with this I mean, the media's been waiting for these pitchers to get hurt. I mean, let's face it, they're waiting, because this is the self-fulfilling, the industry epidemic. It's not an epidemic. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy by the way you, you, you bring these players through. So I understand why they lie a little bit, but it's such a bad optic on that, to use the Sandy Alderson term. So they flip the guys around because there's something going on with Syndergaard. And then... They flip him. They, 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 you know, he's not ready to start on Thursday. Although he says he could have started, but they pushed him back. Harvey's not ready to start because Harvey does some crazy workout. Nobody knows about it. Nobody knows about it. So my question is this: Nobody communicated with Harvey after Monday, when they clearly knew because Syndergaard was supposed to start on Tuesday and didn't. Well, I mean, excuse me, Wednesday it was supposed to be Wednesday Thursday because there was a rain out. Nobody communicated with Harvey and said, hey, get heads up. This might be coming. And if they did and he ignored it, who's running the show? Who's running the show? And let me give you another thing. Even in a week where this manager did something very unlike him, which is go with what he saw on the field with Familia on Friday and said, you know what? This guy doesn't have it. Let me bring in the lefty. It was Maybe a little desperate, maybe a little lucky, but you know what? It's something that very few managers do these days because they don't have the guts to go grab their closer and say, you don't have it today, your mechanics are off, I'm going to go with this matchup. And it worked. And even in that, when I said, you know, that's where this guy needs to go. That's the kind of, that's how you manage a bullpen. You know what he says? Well, if I was on a seven-game winning streak, I wouldn't have done it. What does that matter? The guy's mechanics are off. They're off. 
Why piss a game away when you're on a seven-game winning streak? Why do that? In an environment where you may need that for home field in the wild card, you may need that to make the wild card, you may need that to win a division. So even when he does something good, he does something stupid because you, you, you get a, a window into his mind. But the real thing that bothers me, and it goes back because, and you really should read it. Wright Thompson of ESPN has a piece about, you really got a lot of access to Pat Riley. The same week where Dion Waiters, who plays for the Heat in the Players' Tribune, talked about meeting Riley and the culture that he explained about the Heat organization, about how they demand of their players to be in world-class shape and how he didn't believe it. And then they get there, and they, they just run these guys through the through ragged, where he thinks he's in good shape, but he's, he's throwing up in buckets, trying to get himself into the Miami heat shape. And, right to, and, 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 and the ESPN piece goes into access with Riley that I don't think anybody's really ever had, to tell you the truth. Uh, how he works, his mind, his... his Basically, everything that consumes him in terms of winning, but most importantly, how he sets the tone with the culture. The culture is world-class effort, world-class shape, top to bottom. Things are run a certain way, and when you come in there, you're coming into that system, and there's no reason. I know that's the NBA. There's no reason why that can't be the New York Mets and why that should be the New York Mets. I think that's the difference between the Nats and the Mets because when Dusty Baker took over the Nats, things changed. So let me ask you a question. Do the Mets have a system of accountability? You heard Terry there. He's all, he's all, I mean, let me ask you, that's the message that he's going to send to the clubhouse? A temper tantrum with the media? Basically saying we're doomed, Syndergaard's out. By the way, who's calling the shot? Syndergaard does, you know, I know what Sandy said. Well, Syndergaard doesn't uh, want to take the MRI. He can't throw him in a tube. Okay, you don't pitch. See how fast he'll run to that MRI. Who's running the show? Harvey's running the show? Syndergaard's running the show? Cespedes is running the show? The 14 veterans that he brought into his office? In spring training, I guess it's a collegial thing. They're all running the show. Whose organization is that? And this is, doesn't absolve Sandy Alderson. But here's the thing. Sandy does travel with the team, but the, the front office is not in the clubhouse. And, yeah, the front office this day and age is more involved than ever. They may help make lineups. They push some agendas, but they're still not in the clubhouse. And you've seen Sandy say they try not to be in the clubhouse all that much. Try to stay out of that domain. But all I see, I see a team where everybody does whatever they want. They don't want an MRI. Eh, I don't have to get an MRI. They work out. They, I mean, here's the thing. Either there's a lack of communication or nobody gives a crap. Because here's the thing. If I'm Sandy Alderson, if I'm the owner of the Mets, I sit everyone down and go, guys, let me, let me ask you a question. Help me understand this. I pay this pitching coach whatever this guy gets paid. He had no idea. I would say, hey, Dan, did you have an idea that Harvey worked out hard before this start? No. Well, that's a problem. I have a problem. Terry, did you check in on your pitching coach to see 
Now that, you know, again, that's why you have coaches. So you're as a manager, you trust your pitching coach. No, I didn't. Well, you know what? It starts with you, Terry. I'm pissed at him. I'm pissed at, at, at the pitching coach, but you're the manager. So ultimately, it's your fault, even though it's really not your fault because you're the guy that's supposed to make sure that your, your pitching coach knows what he's doing or you're holding him accountable. And you can even see, you know what the funny part is? You even know Terry's not filling out the lineup. That's, and that's part of the problem, I think. I don't think you really have a manager that can manage this club. Because the, after the game yesterday, he's talking about putting Conforto in the middle of the lineup, and right away the front office had to say, no, he's staying leadoff because Terry's tune changed today. So in that sense, I feel sorry for him because to me, he's the manager. His lineup card is his lineup card. You feed him the data. You give him what you, what you believe is right. And then if he wants to do what he wants to do, listen, you guys could fire him. You guys could fire him. That's nonsense to me. But all I see, and this has, listen, guys, this has been going on since day one. I know for a fact there's been communication. I've talked to a player that played for this guy. The bullpen, those first couple of years, they couldn't even, you guys remember? Players, you know, being called in cold from the bullpen. You think that was a coincidence? I know for a fact that Terry, who's a great communicator, stopped communicating when things got tough, except for a few players. He used to go, he goes to everybody. When he's bad, he just, he, he, you know, pff, I don't need you. I know this because I've, I've, I've spoken to people firsthand. I don't know anybody in the clubhouse now. I don't know if that's going on now, but you think it's different now versus six years ago or seven years ago when he started? Here's another thing, and I'll go put this on the, the management team. What's going on with the strength and conditioning? This Barwis method? Are we training these players to be in Mr. Universe? competitions or to play baseball because I see more pulls and muscle pulls. I see guys less healthy with back injuries. And, and we've talked about this on the show last year. I think Chris from the site brought it up. You know, guys, an athlete played football for Stony Brook. Heard him talking about it here. So is this working? Are we evaluating this? Because to me, either you have the most brittle 25 guys in the world. Find that really hard to believe. That's damn bad luck for any team. Or your strength and condition process is inadequate. Guess which one I'm thinking is the reason why. It's not the first reason. And I know Barwis went to the University of Michigan and Fred Wilpon has to, you know, take care of all his buddies from Michigan and Sandy Koufax. And, you know, you don't want to anger anybody. You know, the hell with the fact that you have a golden window of opportunity here to win. And it's being fritted away. It's being fritted away. With poor conditioning, poor management. And I'll tell you the, the other thing here. And this goes back to where the media, who's been sitting like vultures, and the Mets are so stupid they don't see it, waiting for each one of these young players to break down. Because that's the story that they've built. You know, the narrative is it's an epidemic. There's no epidemic. You, you don't catch injuries. It's not like a cold. You're not contracting a disease. You know what? It's so apparent to me watching the uh, Grom on Friday when he got into the seventh inning and he was around pitch one ten. He totally changed. He went more breaking stuff, kept it away from solid contact. So kudos to him. But you can see he wasn't the same 
eye of the tiger that he was earlier in the game. They're not pushed to go that far. So do I think these pitchers are tough? I question how tough they are. I think DeGrom is tough. I don't know about Syndergaard and Harvey. So now they do the other extreme. They do something stupid, which is like, I'll show everybody how tough I is. I'm, I'm going to go out there and throw the ball through the catcher's mitt against the Nats, probably strain my lat and be out two months. So now we go to the other extreme because it's all the self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, the media sits around with the epidemic waiting for these guys. Anytime they have a bad outing, are you injured? Are you hurt? No, he stunk today. That's what if I, I swear that's what I would answer if I was the, one of the pitchers. I don't know, I stunk today. I'm not hurt. But then these pitchers start to get in their mind. Well, maybe I'm not feeling, you know. If you're waiting for these guys to be 100% healthy the, every day for a given year, it's never going to happen. Pack it in. Move on. Go get yourself five, you know, number three cologne-type starters. Go out there, build up the offense, try to win like the, you know, the late 90s Mets. Forget about it. Because nobody gives a you-know-what when Cologne was pitching and throwing his arm at But he trained himself to get to that point. I mean, he actually came up in, in the late 90s when it was starting to go this direction, but it's really gone overboard. It really has. But a lot of this has to do with the tone with the organization. The organization has put these pictures like the nice car in the driveway, and they only drive it when the conditions are perfect. And guess what? They try to now crank it up to 75 miles an hour. They haven't broken the damn thing in, so what happens? It breaks down. So what I see is forget about all this other stuff. Forget about 23-5. to 5. Forget about the infield D, the outfield D, the offense, all this stuff. If this is what the structure is with this team, the communication, the way that this is being managed, they're not going to win. Yeah, they can mess around and they'll get hot and maybe there'll be a little run for the second wild card this summer. And if you guys are happy with that, so be it. It'll at least get you into the tournament. And if these pitchers are on and healthy when the tournament starts, they can make noise and make damage. Uh, You know that. They did that already. But at some point, somebody has to sit and ask, why does this happen? Why do you have all these incidents? I just laid out every incident this week. And listen, Alderson's in this too. But my thing is, Alderson's not the field guy. The coaches are. That's what they're hired for. If I need management to make all these decisions from the, from the perch up in the Diamond Club, what the hell do you need a manager for? Right? Anyway... Let me take a quick break. When we return, we'll, we'll turn the gear a little bit. Keith Law, smart baseball. The story behind the old stats that are ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball. Have a chance to talk to him about this project. The book is, is certainly interesting. And uh, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of things you can talk about with this. Um, you know, ways to think about how you look at players. It'll actually help you with, I believe, when you forget the math. I think if you look into how teams are looking at players. It'll make you understand why they're doing what they're doing. It'll make you appreciate and I also think evaluate what players are really the type of players that are going to get you to where you want to get, which is ultimately to win, to win a championship, to be one of the top teams in baseball. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time at MetsMorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at 
Mike Silva Media, and you can check out the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you get a chance, write a review for me on iTunes. Would appreciate it, good, bad, or indifferent. We'll be back with Keith Law right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back, and as I said, joining us is Keith Law. You guys know Keith from ESPN. He's on Twitter, at Keith Law, and he's come out with a really interesting new book, Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about it. William Morrow is is the publisher, and Keith is with us now. Keith, uh, how are you? How's everything going? Uh, Pretty good. How about you? Not bad, and uh, let me ask you this, Keith. I, I've spoken to quite a few people who have written books, and it's a tough process, and uh, it's, it's rewarding, I'm sure, at the end, but it's not always fun throughout. A lot of work. What made you do this? Because you, you're, you're the expert. You, you don't need this book, um, and, and those in the industry don't. So uh, I wonder, why did you put yourself through this pain, at least the pain that people describe as what the process of writing a book is? Um, I... Uh... I would say it was moderate pain. It could be worse. I have talked to people who had worse experiences. I had a good editor, uh, which helped a lot. And um, a lot of this was sort of a, um, a brain dump of things I've learned over 15 years working in the industry. So, uh, you know, the research steps probably weren't as bad for me as they might have been for a lot of people. But this was a book I wrote because readers kept asking for something like this. And I uh, couldn't find something to recommend to them. That was really the problem. It's a rec- you know, hey, I know you read a lot of books. Can you recommend something so I can get up to speed on all this stuff? And I could not find a book written for the lay audience that would accomplish that. So instead, I decided to write something myself or at least see if there was interest from a publisher in writing it. And uh, I was very fortunate that there was. And I think that that's important because I think there's a lot of value uh, to, to the analysis you give. And I think there's a lot of lay fans that, if they understood that, would enjoy watching the game more. I don't think they have to understand the math behind it, but I think that might be the next wave in advanced analysis is to say, okay, like you line out in parts of this book, here are two or three or four things to look at. Forget the, the formula. Have them just understand what they're trying to look at here. Um, similar to the old stats, like RBI is a runner that was batted in, and maybe that would enhance their enjoyment. That might be the next step in all this, at least in my opinion. I wonder if you agree. No, I do agree. I do agree, and I tried to keep a lot of the math sort of under the hood, so to speak, because I don't think you need to understand the math to be uh, – to be not never mind to be more of a fan, but just to understand what people are talking about, what teams are looking at. I keep emphasizing this is how teams are doing it. So whether you agree or not, whether you understand the details or not, 
this is something that the entire industry has now decided is important. And so if nothing else, if you want to understand what Sandy Alderson is doing, um, I wouldn't try to explain what Terry Collins is doing because I don't understand that either. But if you want to understand some of the Mets moves, then you need to be up to speed on this stuff. You need to understand what kinds of what the philosophy is of teams looking at analytics as opposed to understanding the details or understanding the difference between the flavors of wins above replacement. If you want to know that stuff, I explain it in the book, but I think you could read this, skip over anything that is remotely mathy and still get a lot of value out of understanding philosophically where teams are coming from. You mentioned the industry has embraced all this. You just go back 10 years ago. That wasn't the case in terms of the teams. Is it fair to say that all 30 teams have a strong enough component of uh, data analysis? And, and who are uh, some of the two or three best teams, in your opinion, out there that are, are ahead of the curve? Well, all 30 teams now have full-time analytics departments. That was not true last year. The Diamondbacks certainly did not. And the Twins, from what I understand, although they had several people doing data, they did not have as much of a commitment as they have to it right now. So all three teams are now up to speed, which, uh, which this is the first season that that's ever been true. Uh, I, I think the Cubs are certainly one of the exemplars at not just using this stuff, not just having anal an analytics presence, but really integrating it across all of baseball operations. I think Cleveland is as well. I think Tampa Bay uh, has been one of the earliest adopters at doing that, at having a large, they do have a huge analytics department, and trying to get that integrated, say, with pro scouting. And the Dodgers uh, are, you know, they were a little bit late to the curve, obviously, but when Friedman and Zaidi took over, they built, they put a ton of resources into this. And I believe by personnel, at least, they have the largest analytics department in baseball. You mentioned Terry Collins earlier, and earlier this weekend he made a, uh, some say a bold move, uh, an interesting move, and, and I, I'm still trying to digest it by bringing Josh Edgen in to face Bryce Harper, taking his closer out. Uh, fundamentally, uh, Keith, if you look at the numbers, it wasn't a bad move. Uh, although you are taking out your closer who throws uh, close to 100, uh, who probably mm -hmm. had the best shot, but he said something interesting, and, and it goes back to what you talk about with the save rule and how the managers have been almost become slaves to that. He said his mechanics were off. I didn't feel good about him. And he brought in a guy that he felt better about, and statistically, it, it stood up. I think Harper was two for 11 going into that at-bat, although we did have a home run. Uh, and that's just one example, but does that give you a microcosm? Because I think a lot of managers are bad at bull managing the bullpen. Terry's at the top of that list, in my opinion. Is that a microcosm, mm -hmm. maybe, <laughs> of, of the save rule and, and perhaps uh, the challenges with it or, or the errors of what uh, ha it has become in terms of managing the bullpen throughout the game? See, I was so mixed on that move because on the one hand, it felt like he was panicking uh, to me, and you can't manage by panic ever. On the other hand, if he really did think Familia's mechanics were off, then that's one of the best reasons to take a reliever out, any pitcher out. If you look and you think a reliever's mechanically – a pitcher, I'm sorry, is mechanically off or that his mechanics have started to degrade over the course of an outing, that's often a sign of uh, – a sign of fatigue, which is a precursor to injury potentially – and a potent, also uh, a potential harbinger that he's going to lose effectiveness. And I do think going for the platoon advantage there was probably a sensible move. Uh, if he planned that all along, if he'd said, no, 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 I was going to have Edge and face Harper if it came to that situation. You know, I feel better about that. That's the kind of decision you should, you should at least have in your mind 
before the inning, before the game. Oh, if we get to a late situation, I'm going to have a lefty face Harper no matter what, if it's, if there's leverage involved. Like then that's process I would feel better about as opposed to what I try to describe in the book is this idea, what's the ninth inning? It's a safe situation. I have to use my closer. Like there are still managers who manage that way. And I think we're well past the point in terms of the way the industry thinks about just about everything else that we should not see that philosophy anymore. This, this, uh, slave to the closer rule kind of mentality. Uh, and when managers got out of that box in the postseason last year, there was widespread praise, especially for Terry Francona. And I, I agree. I was praising him too. But at the same time, I'm thinking that's what we did 40 years ago before the safe rule took over. It's a great point. And would you agree? I mean, I always say if you're a manager of a big league club and there's a lot of things you have to do and, and it's not the only thing, but if you can't manage a bullpen effectively or you – you know, consistently mismanage it from a variety of, of levels. Uh, that to me is a, a, a game changer. And I don't think you could have a manager anymore that that's poor bullpen management. That's really what I think Terry's biggest issue is. He's not alone in that. Um, I mean, do you think most managers are still struggling trying to figure this thing out? And it's not easy. I understand that. And we're, we're all sitting in our couches at home, uh, the, the reporters that are there, but we're all, up, you know, 50,000 feet above, easy for us to criticize. But to me, sometimes there's a lot of things that just – even after you look at it afterwards, just doesn't, just doesn't make sense. I think that's the most, certainly of all the aspects of a manager's job, it's the most visible to all of us, the bullpen management in general. And it is also probably the thing a manager does that has the most direct impact on wins and losses. And so, yeah, I think that's a minimum requirement. If you cannot manage a bullpen effectively, you probably shouldn't be managing in the major leagues. Now, that might mean you should go to the minor leagues and manage for a little while. Like I, I wish more teams used double and triple-A managerial spots as almost apprenticeships, and we're trying to build up potential managers, and we're trying to get you know go down there and get some experience, and we'll have you working on lineup construction. We'll have you working on bullpen management. But it seems like we've gotten to a model now where teams are often hiring uh, you know, they hire someone they're familiar with. They hire someone with no managerial experience at any level, but he used to play in the big leagues, so let's hire him for that. That, to me, it really runs counter to everything that front offices are doing to try to be smarter and more rational about their decision-making. And with me, Keith Law. The book is Smart Baseball. You know Keith from ESPN. He's also on Twitter, at Keith Law. In the book, Keith, you talk about how if you could go back in time, use some of the new advanced measures, or even some basic ones like on-base percentage, how different MVP races would be. Bring up the 87 one where Dawson won the MVP and, and Tony Gwynn had uh, overall a better season. You also talk about the Hall of Fame and the old Burt Blylevin debate, how so many didn't want Burt Blylevin in the Hall of Fame, but when you look at his numbers throughout his career, uh, you have a, a much different picture if you take away just you know the basic stuff. I'll give you another thing to think about because I heard you on another program earlier this week and how you played fantasy baseball in the early 90s and and how you, just like everybody else, was was looking at the traditional statistics. So were Major League Baseball general managers. Think about, and I don't know if you've done this, how many players either didn't play enough, didn't get the chance, or would fit so much better in today's game. And I have one. I want to hear your answer. I have one that I happened to stumble upon, which I think is, is out of left field, but I'd be curious your thoughts. Do you ever have you ever done that analysis of of a couple of players that you grew up watching? Like, man, if he played in the, you know, two thousand five to fifteen, sixteen, seventeen era, he'd he'd be a totally different player. Probably make more money. Yes. Well, someone brought up Ken Phelps the other day. I don't remember what radio program it was, um, but someone brought him up because Bill James was always stumping for him and said, "Would he be, would he be a star today?" I, said, I don't know if he'd be a star. He valued a lot more, and he would have gotten more 
opportunities to play. That was the big that was a huge problem in the eighties and nineties where there were players who'd perform well all the way up the minors and uh it wasn't even just that they failed in the majors, they never got enough playing time. And in the nineties too, Roberto Pettigine, who was a who was blocked in Houston by Jeff Bagwell, so there was a legitimate reason they didn't choose to play him. But there were a lot of us in the sort of underground sabermetrics community who were stumping for this guy saying he deserves a chance to play somewhere. All he's ever done is hit everywhere. He ended up going to Japan and having good years there. By the time he came back, I think his moment had passed. But I wonder if his history would be a little bit different today if he'd performed like he performed and had some uh, some scouts at least saying, yeah, this guy could hit in the big leagues if he got the opportunity. He would have been a coveted player, and Houston could have traded him for quite a bit of value in today's market, whereas back then he wasn't seen in anywhere the same light. Randy Milligan, that's another name I'm going to throw at you. If you look at that on-base percentage, it's uh, it's pretty yep. amazing. I mean, the Mets, Mets were loaded at Hernandez, but the Mets picked Magadan over him, and Magadan's another guy that was an on-base guy and a, and a guy who worked out and actually was criticized because he was such a methodical slow at bat. He would yep. walk all around the on-deck circle, and to think these guys would be completely valued differently Today, uh, and they probably yes. would make more money. I mean, Magnum's a hitting coach. That's the interesting part about it. So it is interesting how, how different things have changed. Yes, and I mean, I think it's all, it's all for the better. Players who have ability are going to get more opportunities now uh, because even if they don't fit maybe a traditional scouting trope or if their traditional scats, stats were not particularly favorable, but the underlying ones, the ones that, uh, that I try to get at in the second section of the book, that are a little more focused on players' individual um, individual contributions stripped of context. That's where I think uh, I think we're much better off because more players like that will get opportunities, and and you have general managers in multiple markets like Tampa Bay's done this for a long time. They're just scouring for players like that who just didn't get an opportunity somewhere else, and they always have playing time for those guys, and they're willing to give those guys a shot and maybe find some hidden value uh, that was not exploited by the players' former teams. You talk also about stolen bases, one of your other least favorite stats. I know that a lot of teams have moved away from the stolen base. Uh, do you think, though, that maybe the pressure that a, a speedy player, not that you should play that player if he doesn't hit, puts on the pitcher, that there is some value to throwing the pitcher off his game? You think of the mid-'80s Cardinals who were successful. No power. No, they had on-base guys in that lineup, but it was all predicated mm-hmm. on speed. Is that a team that could – that you know, with an outlier, if they came into today's game, would that be something of a, of, of a team that would throw the the mix off and maybe move the, uh, the you know, swing the pendulum the other way? I mean, what what do you think about that? I think well, I think a team without power today would just be at a tremendous disadvantage because everyone, you know, all teams are hitting for power, and obviously that's a faster route to improving your run scoring, putting the ball in the seats, or even just hitting more doubles overall. The to your question about putting pressure on a pitcher. Uh, that seems to be uh, balanced out by at least research that we have that says that hitters tend to fare a little bit worse with a base dealer on first base. Baseball Prospectus wrote that in their Baseball Between the Numbers book because the uh, hitter often is taking pitches that he would otherwise swing at because uh, he's trying to give that guy an opportunity to steal. And uh, if that means he's passing up on good fastballs that he should be ambushing, then yes, that is all to the worse um, overall. And if there is some uh, benefit to throwing a pitcher off his game, you lose that. You give back the benefit at the uh, on the other side. 
you know, one last thing before I let you go. You were I'll use the word pioneer. That's my word. You were a baseball prospectus writer when it was off the mainstream back in the 90s. You you worked in the front office. I mean, now that's not an uncommon route. I mean, looking back, I mean, uh, that's got to give you a, a huge sense of pride. And, and the other part of that, do you miss working in a, in a big league front office or you enjoy being – I'm sure from a life perspective, it's a lot more work-life balance that you're doing now. But do you miss that uh, component of, of – especially now where it's so much more of a, of a mainstay in the game? of being in a, in a big league front office? I'm sure I would enjoy the camaraderie, the working together with now maybe more some more like-minded people. We had a few in Toronto, obviously, but uh, now everyone would kind of be working from the same page and the discussions would be of a very different tenor. But uh, I would, I could not imagine giving up the work-life balance that I have right now. I have a 10-year-old daughter and I am here for her all the time. And it's very hard to do that when you're in a front office, or especially if you're scouting. I feel bad for scouts who are on the road as much as they are, and, and so many of them have families. And it's hard for them to get home for more than a couple of days at a time during the season. You're really out 100-plus nights a year, and um, and that's fine. I'm not judging anyone else for making those choices, but it was simply not for me, not once we decided we were going to start a family. It was very important for me to, to try to be home more than that, um, and uh, I don't regret it. So what's next for you? Obviously, you have the book Smart Baseball. I'm sure you have a lot of events. Um, give the listeners an idea if they want to go to an event, if you're doing something online, anything that they need to know uh, tied to the book that uh, you feel worth uh, worth mentioning. So I've got uh, some scattered events coming up. I'm doing signings in Atlanta, Minnesota, one in Buffalo, which is near me on May 8th. Uh, I'm going to Toronto in late June. I believe there's a pitch talks in Berlin in early July that I'm supposed to be at. So it's the next scheduled thing in New York. Um, and uh, there'll be a few more kind of scattered throughout the rest of the year as bookstores or other places have reached out to us, to HarperCollins, we've tried to slip a few onto the schedule. But those are the ones that are. Appreciate the time, Keith. Be well and uh, hope to catch up with you again and maybe we'll see you at one of those events. All right, my friend? Okay, my pleasure. And that's Keith Law. You can check out Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. The book is Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball. Let me take a quick break, and when I return, some final thoughts, and we'll wrap up the show right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. Final segment, and boy, the name Roberto Pettigini that Keith Law brought up really brought back some memories. Uh, I vaguely, I, obviously, I remember that name, and I knew he played for the Mets, and he played for the Mets in 96 and briefly 97, but I brought up some of his uh, minor league numbers, 
And uh, obviously the Pacific Coast League is, um, you know, a hitter's league. It's always been that that way. But I looked at him at Norfolk, and at one year, and that's back in 1997, uh, Pettigini put up 31 home runs, 100 RBIs at, for the Tides playing for the Mets, 430 on-base percentage, OPS over 1,000, uh, walked almost as much as he struck out. I mean, that that is serious money ball numbers. And then he went on to basically a couple of years later make his career in Japan hitting you know 25 to almost 45 home runs depending on the year for about five, six years. Never really was able to establish himself. And I think that's the thing with these guys uh, like a Pettigini. Um, you know, I brought up Dave Magadan. Uh, Randy Milligan, there's a name I, I told you. There was a guy that, you know, if, if you really think back, he might have been a guy, you know, a guy that if you look at his stats with the, the Tides when he was a member of the Mets, and I know they got Mackie Sasser for him, very well might have been a better option than Magadan. He had the power that they were looking for for a corner for his baseman on base percentage, righty bat. I mean, Magadan always was the one that they were waiting to become that player. But Magadan was an undervalued player in the sense where everybody says, well, he didn't hit home runs, and he was annoying because he he, he was you know, he used to take those long walks, and guy got on base, work counts. If he was playing as a young player today, they would love him. Then he probably would always have a starting job, and he never would have been thought of as an underachiever, as I feel like he was with the Mets because he was a corner player. And he was a first baseman. So anyway, Keith Law gave us some really interesting things to think about. Uh, the book is Smart Baseball. I think that you should check it out. Um, really could go back and have some fun and look back at some of the MVP races, some of the players that maybe the Mets traded for, or if you're, you know, obviously if you listen to this, you're a Mets fan, but some of the players that you thought, hey, that was a really good player when I was young. Well, that was a player you didn't think about, and you start to look at the numbers. And really, the, the key stat, when you look at all the offensive numbers, is on-base percentage. That's what you want. You want a guy that gets on base. He can hit 40 home runs if he's on base 25% of the time. There's certainly value to the home run. The home run has almost become like the NBA version of the three-pointer. Everybody's going to do it now. Because, like you said, you know, players hitting a home run are going to score far easier than trying to get three doubles in a row. More likely. So, interesting segment. A lot to talk about. Obviously, the main uh, topic is the health of Noah Syndergaard, who we just don't know. And I would expect him to be out a couple of months if it's a strain lat. Uh, the Mets are going to have to survive, and they're going to have to play through it, and they're going to have to be tough. And uh, nobody's going to, uh, to use the Terry term, nobody's going to feel sorry for them. The Nats just lost their starting center fielder. Um, the season's certainly not over. And the lack of Syndergaard there has nothing to do with the inability to hit, the inability to consistently hit, the inability for Matt Harvey to execute his pitches, for DeGrom to execute his pitches, for the bullpen to do their job. Uh, None of that has anything to do with it. Now, it does make it a lot harder every fifth day when you go from Syndergaard, an ace, down to Rafael Montero, who will get another opportunity to prove himself in this organization, or Sean Gilmartin. But... Uh, the Dodgers last year lost Kershaw, and they played pretty well without him. The Giants lost Madison Bumgarner, and nobody on that, in that clubhouse feels sorry for the Mets. And they lost him in a far more horrific way than uh, Syndergaard trying to be a tough guy on the mound. So, you know, the Mets are going to have to play through it. And you're not going to tune into this show and hear me either give him a pass or feel sorry for them 
or um, make excuses for them because that's just not something that uh, I'm going to do here. But I will say this. They need to start looking inward and figure out what kind of organization they want to be. And if the people they have making decisions are the right people for what I would say, what is the Mets way? What is the theme here? What is the strength and conditioning? What is what do what are the expectations of players when they put this uniform on? Because right now I don't know. It seems to change all the time for me, and it seems to depend on who it is, and you know whether you're on a winning streak or not. So to me, that that's what the big question I walk away from in this week's podcast. Hey, uh, gonna wrap it up here. Want to thank Keith Law again. Keith's uh, book, Smart Baseball: The Story Behind the Old Stats That Are Ruining the Game the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball. Check out Keith on Twitter, at Keith Law. Of course, you can check me out all the time on MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media. Put a review on iTunes. Uh, listen to me on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, pretty much wherever you want. And be well, and I will see you next Sunday. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager, only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.